Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is the multi-talented Bjarna Salin, who many of you are familiar with from his work on The 50 Project, and that means his work putting up with Cody Townsend, and some others of you know Bjarna for his work on adventure vans and custom vans, and more recently, tiny homes. So in this conversation, Bjarna and I talk a bit about his adventures and exploits in the mountains with our good friend Cody Townsend, and then we turn the conversation to this other project of Bjarna's, building and selling custom vans and now tiny homes. And as you'll hear me confess in this conversation, there was once a time where I thought that tiny homes were maybe only of interest to hardcore hippies or societal weirdos, I don't know. But I've had a big change of heart on this because if you live or if you would like to live in or near pretty much any mountain town and you've been paying attention to home prices in these places, well, then you'll probably understand why my attitude has changed entirely about tiny homes. And actually, I really see this conversation as a bit of an extension on the series we've done on mountain town economics and solutions to affordable housing. And I thought this was a perfect opportunity to start exploring how viable of a solution tiny homes might be and why or why not. And so I think this conversation might actually get you thinking about what you really want in life and what you really need. And maybe, hopefully, it will get all of us reimagining what our communities and our living situations could look like. So check out the conversation and see what you think. And while you listen, you can go to bjarnabuilds.com to check out some of the vans and tiny homes that Bjarna is building. And so with that, let's talk to Bjarna. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to have on the Blister podcast for the very first time, Bjarna Salin. And Bjarna, we got to start with this. You are the first guest in Blister podcast history to come on to the show shirtless. So congratulations. World historical first moment. Yeah, thanks. No, it means a lot. Thanks. No. <laughs> thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, when you told me that this video, I was like, all right, maybe I should put my shirt on, you know? And then then, then you got you got kind of disappointed, but Well, it was, I, it was a world historical moment. You did kind of ruin it, you know, but yeah, and we would have had it on video, but now we don't. So I feel like I feel like fans around the world are just going to be sorely disappointed now. Yeah, they're missing out. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't know. It's like, I can't see, you know, that much. I can mostly see like your collarbone type of thing. But uh, I just assume they're, you know, we're all sorely missing out here. I take that as a compliment, I guess. Well, <laughs> okay. 
Second thing we need to discuss, we were just talking a little bit about the pronunciation of your name. I confess that I had been going with a bit harder of an E on the end. You then said, we actually maybe should talk about some of the various pronunciations of your name that you get. And so tell us about that, Bjarna. Yeah, that, that, you know, it's interesting because Bjarne is obviously from Sweden and a lot of people in the States, they just can't pronounce it. And still some of my friends, they don't know how to pronounce it. And I stopped correcting them because very often they say it wrong. So it's been everything from, you know, when they see my name and how it spells, they are like uh, Bjorn or Bjarni or then it's Bjarni or, you know, some people even call me Bernie, right? So, you know, it's it's up, it's up to you how you want to pronounce my name. And if I hear something that sounds kind of like my name, uh, then I usually respond. So when you said Bjarne, I'm like, cool, that sounds pretty much like my name. So It's, it's better than it could have been. But so, just so everybody knows, we're putting a, a soft E on the end, Bjarna. Yeah, you're doing pretty well, yeah. Bjarna, solid, Bjarna solid. There you go. Of course, yeah. obviously, yeah. Hey, the other thing is I'm really happy to finally have on the podcast the smarter, more interesting, clearly better looking half of the 50 Project. Just month in and month out, I get stuck talking to Cody. So I really, I just have been looking forward to this moment. I'm glad we've made it happen. And I'm, I'm mostly just so happy that I don't have to be subjected in this conversation to Cody's never-ending terrible takes on things. So again, thank you so much for being here. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Speaking of bad takes, Cody's bad takes, I mean, you spend a lot of time with that dude, like intense and on sometimes skin tracks, sometimes setting skin tracks. How have you managed to put up with him for, it's been what, five years on this project? Yeah, that's correct. Well, we finished our fifth season for uh, about a month, month and a half ago. And yeah, I do. <laughs> we spent a lot of time together. And uh, I think uh, we learned a lot about each other, about partnership and friendship. And I think the longer we've been working, the more we got to know each other. And I think the stronger we get, really, you know, it's... Uh, uh, I think we are both pretty easygoing people, and uh, now it's starting to be like many people are asking, "Are you are you really getting along still?" and and all that. And uh, so far, it's been pretty good sailing so far. Of course, we have our moments when we talk about things, but we are better uh, partners in the mountains and uh, better friends the longer the time has gone so far. So it's uh, it hasn't been. Uh, a problem at all, really, to spend that much time with each other. That seems really hard for me to believe, but I, I will, I will take your your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm also curious. You talked about how the kind of partnership, the friendship, has actually gotten stronger over the years. Just in terms of the complexities and the logistics of each of these different adventures with the fifty. Has that itself gotten easier over the years? Or is it like, well, every every mission, every new location just starts throwing up its own unique challenges at you? And so it's 
maybe not so much that you develop a better rhythm or a better style of communication because each project is so new and different. How does that part of it go? I think that when it comes to how Cody and I've been working together, it's going better and better in terms of how we react to certain situations up in the mountains, because if something happens and uh, weather comes in or this and that, I kind of know what's uh, what's good to film and what's not good to film. And I understand how he is reacting because we worked so much together. And I think that comes with, with experience, but every peak is also very different. And we had some projects the first year that was very challenging with weather, logistics and all that, and we still do. So that's kind of from mountain to mountain. This year we had a few that was, they were pretty easy, straightforward, but then there were a few that were very tricky. So I think that's from location to location, but in terms of how we are acting as people on the mountain, I mean, that comes with experience when you spend time with any mountain partner or any person in life, when you spend time with each other, you'd start learning how we work and how we react in certain situations. Are you able to say that you have a particular favorite cinematic moment, something you captured on film, either from the entirety of the 50 or, or we can maybe make it simpler from this past season? Hmm. Something special. I don't know if I have something that's sticking out that much. I feel like every episode and every movie we are making, they are completely different. So I think there are moments where I'm like, oh, I know that they said the right thing and they are far away and I know the audio is good. And I'm like, oh, that's a really good shot because I know that this will be in the film. I already know it. You know, it's like if I know if I know the story, which I do when I'm out there and I get something like that, I'm always like, oh, sweet. That's a good one. Uh, and that happens pretty often. And I also know when I'm filming, if that's a crucial point in the actual film. Because, uh, you know, you've been on the mountain the whole day or you've been from start to finish. And if it's a turnaround point or if it's we decide to go somewhere, we decide to not go somewhere. And those moments are the most important ones. And when it comes to the actual cinematic stuff, of course, when you get a really beautiful shot, you're like, oh, I'm very happy with this one. But you haven't seen the edit either. So you also don't know 100% if it's going to make it in kind of deal. So of course, when it's a, when it's a very, very crucial, good uh, cinematic shot, for example, I know, okay, that's good. That makes me happy. That's going to get in there. That's going to make the episode or the movie even better. But I think that I don't have a special moment. I have many of those in every episode, to be honest. What has proven to be harder? Capturing clean audio or capturing the visuals that you want? I think I think it's a bit of a mix. You kind of need both, you know? And I think the answer to that is to be close to when it's happening. I need to like be there. I can't be down there or up here. I need to like be with the camera in everyone's faces. And that's the moment that matters. One thing that's very crucial to me is I should film when I don't feel like filming. And that's very, very difficult. And I think that's maybe one of my strengths to be able to film when you really, really don't want to film because that's when 
50% of those shots are the most crucial ones. You know, when, you, when you're tired, you're like grumpy, you're hungry, you're cold, you're like, why am I doing this? Or, you know, we all have these ups and downs, but when those kicks in, I need to pinch myself and be like, film this because this is important. And then I just do that. And those are the moments actually that's been the most crucial things in the films we have done that made them so successful very often. That's a great point. And so do you find yourself having wrapped up season five, would you say this fifth season you found yourself filming a lot more frequently and letting the cameras roll than you were doing, say, season one? Or is this something that you learned prior to ever starting the 50 project? I think that's something I learned the last 15 years of experience is that mm-hmm. when you don't want to film, film, period. <laughs> All right. Is that just like a life lesson? We should just always be, all of us should be walking around all the time filming, or is it a little a little more uh, specific than that? I think it's way more specific than that, but I do think that if you want to go into life lessons, that sometimes if we don't feel like doing something, but we know it might be a good thing, well, then just do it and call it good. Like, don't think about it. Sage advice. Sage advice. Hey, you know, because I told you this, one of the things that I really want to talk about, because I think this is fascinating, and I think that myself and probably a lot of people out there could stand to learn about this other passion and project of yours. You know, when you're not always rolling tape of Cody, adventure vans, and then more recently, a move also into tiny homes. What I'd like to do, though, is back up and just hear a bit from you. When did you start thinking about these things? When did they first kind of come onto your radar as something you you were curious about and and maybe thought, I'm into this and maybe these offer some solutions for living? I get creative ideas sometimes. And when those hit me, I listen to them and they last for a very long time. And it's like a story that builds up in my head and it happens every fourth, every fifth year, maybe even less than that. When I started filming, that happened to me when I was on a bus in Nepal, when I was first 20 years old. Then I realized that I want to make films and that's what I started doing. Then I have a few more of those later on in life, but for about six years ago, I decided that I really want to make a van because it's something that tells me I I want to build a travel van to be able to go to these places. And that's what I decided to do. And at the same time, Cody and I decided to, for me to film the 50 project. So that's how the whole van part start that I built a van every year to travel in, sell it, do a new one. I did that for like in total, like three, four vans. And then I decided to start a company because it's fun and I like a side business as well. And I like challenges. I like to learn. I like challenge myself and see if I can do something about that. I started selling adventure vans for about two years ago and it's been going really well. And we are super fired up and we are busy. We're building these vans and it's 
something that a lot of people have the opportunity to either build themselves or have someone to build it for them to be able to explore what we have around here on this planet, basically. And for an outdoor enthusiast like myself, it was a no-brainer. I'm spending around 100 days in a van each year. So that taught me what works and what doesn't work. And I see people selling vans that spent a week in a van and that's good for them. They might be able to make it work, but it's also like, TV ask me, you need to spend hundreds of days in a van to be able to know what works and what doesn't work. And for about half a year ago, I got this, actually for about nine months ago, I got this idea, this creative idea I mentioned that happens to me every third, every fifth year, something like that. I just got this realization. I was like, I need to build a tiny home because I have so many reasons why these are good for so many other people. And uh, I looked at tiny homes for many years and I never really got to it. But I got this thought in my head that I wanted to do this and I just saw possibilities and I literally created our first tiny home in my head up to the inch. That's how crazy my brain can be sometimes. I can just think and think and think and think and think. And then I have the whole house after about 12 hours of thinking, I created the whole house in my head. And then I need to sit down and draw it and put it on the computer and show someone, this is what I created. And that happened. And then after that, I was like, it's go time. Let's start make tiny homes too. Okay. Lots of questions here. Let's go back to adventure vans for a minute. You said that many people, if they are, you know, getting into this, maybe they're really starting to look at like, maybe I want to have an adventure van. We wouldn't know what we really would want or what really works well, because we maybe have not spent, well, a hundred nights in one. So what would you identify as some of the common mistakes? What do people get wrong do you think most frequently or most commonly as they start thinking about, you know, this tricked out van that they could live in? It doesn't have to be wrong. It's just not how I would do it. I'm not saying that the things we are doing is 100% right and everyone else are wrong. I'm just saying that I don't want that kind of layout in a van, for example, because it doesn't work. If you ask me, I spent all these nights and days in a van and going to these places in cold and warm temperatures. This works and that doesn't work. And that comes from all my days spending out there. It's everything from how you do the layout, how you do a cabinet, the efficiency of drying things. And, you know, it's very cold, it's very warm. How do you do with insulation, the wiring, how to put the screws in? Like there are so many things to think about. And in in terms of spending all that time out there, that's that's what I think you learn how to how to make it more more efficient. You know, I'm I'm Swedish, I like efficiency and I like things to work extremely well. And if it doesn't, I want to change it. And that's just that's just who I am. So this is less about, I was thinking to give an analogy, you know, a lot of skiers out there, maybe skiers who don't ski that much or have not skied that much yet. You know, we often hear that skiers get into ski boots that are just too big for them, 
right? Because they were easy to put on in the shop. And so they were comfortable, easy on off. And then they get out there and, you know, if they want to start skiing with a bit more precision and better performance, you need to get into a smaller boot. I thought maybe you were saying that a number of people looking to get into an adventure van, they think they want X, Y, or Z, and then you end up spending a good bit of time trying to talk them out of what they think they would want, given their lack of experience and given your, well, wealth of experience. Yeah, and that's part of my job too, to talk with, for us, clients that want their van. And some people will be like, oh, we want this and that in there. Oh, we want this. We want the biggest thing of these and we want that thing in there. And I'm like, just to stop. It's a van we talk about, not a house. And then I'm telling them, you know, Yes, this thing is a very good idea, but you can't have it there because this and this happen when you walk into the van. So you can't have that thing there. There is this under a van here and you want to swivel that seat there. So forget about that thing. But, but you can put it here, but that means you need to remove this thing. So that's why our layout works pretty well from what I just told you. So I think it's a, I, I'm not telling them like, you know, don't do this. I'm just saying I would never do that. And that's very often enough. And obviously if it's something that I'm like, oh no, that's a red flag. Then I'm like that, no, that's a no-go because of this and this. If uh, if you want to build a van like that, that's unfortunately not us because we know that it's not going to be functional. And many people listen to me when I say that because they do probably, hopefully, trust my experience in these vans. How heavily do you customize each job? Do you work off of three or four primary layouts and most people choose one of those three or four layouts or does it seem pretty unique each time out? What does that look like? At the moment, we have about three to four layouts and we know they are working well because I personally use them all. So we know that's a no-brainer. They're going to be great. And if someone wants something different, I mean, I'm not going to say no. I'm just going to say that Yes, we can do most of that, but it's just going to take longer time. And if that's what you want to spend your money on to make an extra van because of this and this and this, we are a custom van building company. So yeah, we can totally do that. It's just going to take longer time. And many people actually want that. They were like, cool, we wait a little bit. We save up some more money because we want this. And then they come back and they're like, cool, we are ready because we want this custom van. Let's talk about the design, figure out every inch of it, and then let's go for it. And that process can be pretty tricky. I'm not going to lie. It takes a long time, longer than you ever think. But if someone wants 100% custom van for their needs, uh, we'd be all over it to like make it. And we have done that. You know, we have done the coolest one we did was for like a, a a tandem gravel bike that's giant that they had under their bed you know and we had to make the bed like six and a half foot long maybe six seven actually and you know so we had to like do all these things for these people but that's what they wanted and it took a bit of extra time uh, definitely but the van turned out really really good a tandem gravel bike yeah it's pretty sick 
I need to see this thing. Yeah. And and now the the van that accompanies it, apparently. Okay, that's a good example of a custom build, I'd say. So is it obvious, or had, do you get asked this question much, who do you think would be the best candidate for an adventure van? Like, if this isn't already you know, on somebody's radar where they're watching a ton of YouTube videos on this already. Maybe they haven't really thought much about this ever. What would be your pitch about like, look, here's the type of person that would be best suited to look into something like this and maybe perhaps eventually get one of these vans? I think to figure out if you are a person who maybe wants a van in the future, I... To be honest, I think the best would be to rent the van somewhere because it would be a bummer if you think you are that kind of person and then you invest so much time and money to have a van, build it out or buy a van that's already built out. And then you used it for like five uh, weekends and you are like, oh, this is not for me. So I think it's really good to actually rent the van first and uh, rent it from wherever you wherever you can just rent the van and then uh, and then see if you actually like it because you might think you like it but you don't know until you tried it you know so i think it's important to just get that experience because you can say to yourself yeah i'm that person i'm gonna do this but you might absolutely don't like it and that would be a bummer for everyone like we don't want to build a van to someone who's like not even want to use it. I mean, then we can have built the van for someone else, you know, then we could have spent our time and energy and our professionalism into someone who's like really fired up, you know? So I think uh, that's the first step. And, but an indicator to maybe why you would be that kind of person who would like the van in the future is someone who wants to go out places, spend more than a day, and I'm not talking about specific activities, but some kind of rec recreational activities out there, if that's hiking or running or backpacking or skiing or climbing or kayaking or biking, whatever you want to do. It doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't have to be on any scale of that. Just someone who's like, I want to spend more time out in the nature. And a lot of people do that. And then they start camping out of their car and then they start uh, using their tents more and more. And then they're realizing that a van would be a very, very, very good investment for their own lifestyle. It doesn't have to be the most fancy van in the world. It doesn't have to be the cheapest one, whatever works for them. And then you have the opportunity to actually be out in the nature way more than you were before. And I mean, to be, to be honest, it's when you have a van, it's pretty sweet because like, of course, this is amazing. It's like you're doing your thing out there in nature and then you come back to your van and you can like stand up and cook in it. And you're like, we even have wood stoves in some vans. And then it's like a, a diesel heater. And then it's like, you're cooking food in there when it's raining outside and you dry your gear. Like that's amazing. You know, that's like, if people start complaining about that a van doesn't work, I'm like, yeah, that's a bummer. You can be in the van. That's amazing. Like, holy shit. That's so cool. I think that's your I think that's your sales pitch. I think that was good. Let's shift gears. Tiny homes. I think this is a fascinating subject. We have spent a lot of time talking about affordable housing issues. 
you know, huge issues in every mountain town, um, increasingly big issues virtually anywhere in the, the world, whether they're mountain towns or not, actually. And um, this is something that Cody and I talk a lot about. And I have to give credit where credit is due as I started seeing that you were beginning to do these tiny home offerings. It kind of connected the dots for me in a way that it just had not before where I was thinking, my goodness, we are talking about just how exorbitantly expensive it can be to live in certain desirable locations. How much can tiny homes serve as a solution here? And this gets into all kinds of issues about, I don't understand or know much about, uh, you know, in different locations, if we want to keep it just to the United States, or if we're talking about North America, you know, in total or other portions of the world, are there regulations and restrictions that make it tricky to buy and set up tiny homes in places? What can you tell us about this whole landscape? And maybe you can speak a bit to this question of, as so many people are struggling to figure out housing situations, how much can tiny homes serve as solutions to these as opposed to being some pretty niche thing that um, maybe won't get the kind of widespread adoption that I am now imagining seems like they could get and might deserve? There are a lot of things to talk about here. We we should dig into it slowly and and see where it takes us. And uh, what, let me ask you this first of all. Um, how is a person with a normal income be able to have afford with a average priced house in the United States in a touristy place, which very often are ski towns or other attractive areas? How is a person like that gonna have afford to buy their own home with an average income? Crime, Rob, a lot of crime, robbing banks, murdering people and stealing their possessions. That's my best answer. Yeah, I mean, there is the, to me, it's like impossible. If you don't have family money, like if you have family money and you have that, you can be okay to buy a home on an average income because you have that financial setup behind you. Sweet. But many people don't and they still want to be able to live in these areas, you know? And a home like this is, is just cheaper in many different ways. Um, so if a person with an average income, if they want to, you know, take a loan to be able to have afford to actually buy a house, it's going to take them forever to pay off a loan. These houses are very expensive, the ones we are talking about. They don't have to be the nicest houses out there. They can be an average home, but with an average income, you you, you don't have a Ford with that. It's it's basically basically impossible. And to me, it's like this. It's, you know, everyone's talking about freedom in America. It's like, well, we want freedom here and there. But then it's this thing that, oh, we should... Uh, Put ourselves in a house loan, you know, so we can buy this amazing house. Oh, it's so big, it's so large, and then we're gonna pay a monthly uh, fee for this house, and it's mortgage, and it's this and that, and then you're stressing about paying off your house loan. Like we all know, not everyone, but most people know how it is to. It's a bit stressful when you when you like stressing about money like that. 
And then you're going to work so much to be able to pay your house loan. And then it doesn't give you any freedom anyway, you know? And and very often money means freedom to a lot of people and, and including to myself. Like I don't need a lot of money to feel freedom, but if I get a little bit extra, that gives me freedom, you know? And then I can do a lot of fun things that are outside of work. But if I have a big house loan, well, I better work some more so I can pay off this beautiful house. And that's just one of many, many reasons why uh, why I think this could be a solution. I'm not saying that tiny homes are the solution on the house crisis out there, but I definitely think it's one way to get there. And I don't have to go too far, you know? I can take this personal as well because I'm sitting in my tiny home right now that we built and we are so fired up on it. It's amazing. Like this is the tiny home I thought about and we designed it and we built it. And now people want these tiny homes. I actually got a lady contacting me today and be like, hey, I'm interested in that tiny home uh, because I have this uh, land in Hood River and they basically don't have afford to build a massive house. This is a beautiful start on for them to either live in or they can build the house they want to do, but use the tiny home when they are building their other house. And it doesn't have to be a giant house, by the way. You know, it's that's not what we're talking about here. It's very personal to me, this also, because this is not like a lifestyle, what I'm doing. It's actually my life. It's like, yeah, we create this lifestyle, but this is actually how I'm living. I'm living in these vans. I'm living in these tiny homes. And for me, it was like, yeah, I want my own place here in Hood River, Oregon, but I don't have family money, okay? I'm not from the United States. Like, I worked my ass off to be able to do what I do. It's just hard work and be creative, right? And then I would like to have my own place here in Hood River, but the prices are extremely expensive. Like, it's absolutely bananas, you know? It's probably the same in Tahoe, Krusty Butte, Jackson Hole, all these places. And, you know, a lot of people with money from the cities, like I have many friends with a lot of money, so nothing against people with money. I mean, I, I love my friends and I don't care if they are poor or rich, like they are people, right? And a lot of people come into these places and they buy these houses that are like six, 700,000. And then they tear them down sometimes and build a massive, massive house on top. And they spend two weeks a year in this house. How is someone with an average income gonna have the possibility to uh, compete with that person when this person comes in with cash? And then I was in that situation. I'm like, oh, that place looks good. Oh no, it's, you know, I got sold with someone with cash, 100,000 above asking price. And I'm like, it just doesn't work for me. Maybe in the future, but right now doesn't work. So I built this tiny home. And that was one reason why I wanted to do it from the start too, to be like, I'm not just gonna build tiny homes and sell them and pretend that this is a good solution. I need to live in that mindset and I need to live in a tiny home to be able to say to people from my heart what I think, what works and what doesn't work. The same with advance. Yeah, this works, this works, but if you don't, haven't spent time in that, you don't really know. So I'm one of those people that for one of many reasons why it might be good with a tiny home. Yeah. 
By the way, do you know what the roots are, the Latin roots are for the word mortgage? Teach me. Death grip. <laughs> yeah, there you go. This fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was all very well said. And talking about freedom, uh, which is certainly a value here in America and many of our friends and people we love, we care about freedom. And in the current housing climate and economy, you have said well how, you know, it's understandable why home ownership is attractive. And yet increasingly people are having to make a choice to really saddle themselves with really significant debt to try to make the home ownership dream happen. And like I said, that's why given all the conversations we've had about this, one, just even the the notion, remembering that we don't all need to live in massive homes, right? You go into virtually any ski town, I imagine, and you look at the new construction homes, most of what you're going to see is really large structures, right? And like, okay, nothing wrong with that per se, but it can have an effect where we assume, oh, well, I guess if you're going to live in Jackson or the Tahoe area, et cetera, just the picture of a house is some 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 foot structure. And it's like, wait, no, just a reminder, that doesn't have to be true, you know? And you are living that and proving that. So you said it doesn't have to be wrong. And it's like, I'm not going to say it's right or wrong, but I'm going to obviously say that it's not sustainable. Like I'm coming from Europe where... You know, we grew up in a house, you know, three siblings and parents in a really small house, like really small as an American home. It's really tiny and you don't need much more to be able to be much happier. That's for sure. Like a big house, in my opinion, does not equal big happiness. I'm not saying it's only wrong with a big house. Of course not. Like, I'm not saying that tiny homes, that that's the solution on the housing crisis. But I do think it's a step in the right direction. So you mentioned four, five, six, seven thousand square feet. That's giant. That's insanely giant if you're not a family of 20. Like, how can so many, so big houses be everywhere And if it's like three, four people. And think about this, the environmental impact as well when it comes to tiny homes compared to these giant homes is a huge difference. I don't know exactly the percentage, but it's something like 40% of the energy that being spent in the United States is about cooling down or heating all these houses. Like, that's crazy. You know, it might be a bit less up and down in that percentage. Don't take me for the number, but approximately, right? A tiny home is 10% to 15% of that size. And also, you know, cooling down, heating up a home 
is way, way more efficient, right? And then another fact here, so listen to this one. They done some research on how much of the space in an average American home actually being used over a long period of time with like, you know, heat cameras and all that. So they see where people move. <laughs> it's like when I saw that, it like made me cry. Like, because think about it. How many people out there do you think have these big homes and they have minimum, you know, one, two, maybe three rooms that they actually don't use more than a handful of times a year, maximum, not even that. Maybe they don't even... Maybe they can uh, put those two rooms into one room and actually use it once a week. You know, that's where my mentality is coming from too. Europe, Scandinavia, it's a bit more efficient in terms of how you do solutions on these things. But these are some great examples of why I think that smaller homes might be a very good solution. And all of them doesn't have to be on wheels. And all of them doesn't have to be like this and like that. Like, but just smaller homes, I think is a good thing. And I think having house on wheels is actually really, really good because it doesn't require the same permits left and right. And you can actually move it. You can move your house. How crazy is that? You're like, oh, cool. I want to live here. I found a, a piece of land where I can maybe rent. I can put my home there, have my house. Can you imagine how crazy is that? You're like, I'm moving my house, it's on wheels, it's so cool. You're like, I can live in Hood River in my house, it's on wheels, but whatever. If I decide to move to White Salmon across the river or other places or uh, Krusty Butte where you are from or other areas, if it's legal to park a tiny home, I can just take a decent pickup truck, roll it across the country, put my house there, and done. And then people are like, oh, we have to drive the house there. Well, of course you have to drive it, but I'm telling you something, it's way more efficient, it's way more cost-effective and better for the environment than build a new home, you know? There are so many examples why I think this is a, a beautiful solution to be able to have your, your own home as well. You mentioned the legality of parking a tiny home on wheels on a piece of land. What can you tell us about, I guess as a generalization across the United States or in other countries, how easy is it to, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm interested, I'm sold. I love everything you've said in this conversation. I'm gonna try to rent a piece of land or buy a piece of land and set up a tiny home on it. Easier said than done. Is it easier out west than the east coast? Are there certain towns where they're very receptive and amenable to tiny homes? Other places we should know about that are really make it really difficult to have a tiny home? What can you tell us about this? It's a little bit of a gray area, but obviously we have all these different states in this country. Every state, they have different zones. And every zone have different rules and laws when it comes to tiny homes. And there are plenty of those, so I'm not going to go down to which one works and which one doesn't work, because that's kind of up to anyone to research if it's possible and if it's not. If it's not, it might be 
on the way because many places see this housing crisis and apartments are being built, but people sometimes want to have their own houses. Cool, we can put them on wheels and then they starting to figure out if it works and if it doesn't work. In some places, it's all good. It's like amazing. You can have a piece of land and you talk to uh, the, the county and the laws and they are like, well, I want to put this tiny home here and I want to live in it. And they are like, cool, go ahead. Other places, nope, it's illegal. But those places are being changed more and more. It's a slow process because as we know, innovation or uh, new thinking, new solutions, it always take a long time. And it's amazing how more and more places are opening up for this. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, I get really happy when I see new people say uh, tiny homes are okay in this zone, in this uh, county, in this state, and it's popping up more and more, but it's still a bit of a gray area. So some places, yes, you can park them. Some places, not as good. And uh, it depends on what kind of uh, land it is. It depends on who owns it and where it's located. It's like, it's, you kind of have to dig into it. So if someone feels like I want a tiny home, yes, I want to live in this location. I want to buy a piece of land because I want to put a tiny home on it. If that's their only reason why they want to buy that piece of land before buying it, I would obviously, obviously do my research and be like, can I even have that on here? Uh, what What about this? What about that? Um, uh, okay, I heard it's okay over there, but is it okay over here? Uh, so I think that's something we all have to like look into a little bit more and more. And are you gonna have it there as uh, your own uh, home where you're gonna live forever? Or is that something you're gonna have as your own uh, place to come and go to sometimes and it might be a loss on how long you can live there etc so there's no clear answer on it there it's a very gray area but it's it's mostly possible in many places and evolving and changing right um that's pretty great do you happen to know is there a current best resource where people should go to start looking into these things? Or would you advise, well, call a city planner or town manager to try to get information on this for people to start just investigating and learning more? What resources do you know of or, or where do you recommend they start making phone calls? We've been doing a ton of research ourselves, and it's still a bit of a gray area. And people put information out there and some information is pretty legit, but I would definitely go to the local people and talk to them because I also see it out there that some information I find on this side of, of the country about this area is not 100% true. So I always recommend to talk to uh, the locals not just like local people in town. I'm talking about the county people, the the people that knows about what laws and what what is restricted and what's not in the local community. And from there, I would start researching. Can you give us some kind of standard parameters for like what actually counts as a tiny home? What kind of square footage are we looking at and how broad is the range? Yes, it depends on because if you want to have 
a tiny home that's legal to drive on the road. You just have to make sure that, you know, it's not wider than 8.5 feet. It's not higher uh, than 14 feet and all that. So if you are inside those measurements and it's a, for example, a 30 foot trailer, then you can come up in 320 square feet if you include the loft, which is like a small apartment in Europe, a very small apartment in the United States, right? But you can also make them wider. You can make them a bit longer. You can also make them higher. But if so, obviously it's illegal to drive on the road without oversized uh, blinking lamps left and right. And you can totally do that. You just have to make sure that you have the right papers, you have the right driver, you have the right measurements of the road so you don't screw things up. That'd be very, very bad. Uh, you need a professional uh, driver, like a, a, um, a pilot that, what do you call those in the States? The pilot driver or something? Pilot drivers? I don't think that's a thing. What, what do you call those blinking maybe. vehicles that goes in front or behind of massive transports on the road? It's a great question. Road pilot, I, I think it is. Road pilot. Yeah, that's one word for it. But you know what I mean? Those irritating vehicles yeah, yeah, that close, totally. closing down uh, sections of the road because they have a big windmill come or something. Um, <laughs> you, need, you need one of those maybe if you want to <laughs> Lots of windmills. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so eight and a half feet wide, 14 feet tall. If we're talking about a tiny home on wheels... If we're talking about a more fixed structure, no wheels, then what? I mean, then it depends on how heavy, badass trailer you have and how many blinking cars you have. <laughs> I have 10 of those. Yeah. So I can just get a, my 4,000 foot yeah. tiny home. Yeah, exactly. Well, good luck. And I'll put it in different pieces and then uh, model or home it together or something. I don't know how that works. Actually, I don't have an answer on it. I do know that uh, we are building our houses uh, under that limit and it's possible to transport them on the road. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's super cool. You know, we transported this one downtown Hood River to be able to weigh it. And it was, it was amazing to see people's views when they're like, wow, it's a house coming, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. And it's, we didn't have any problems with it. It's a 30 foot long trailer, so you're going to be able to drive it properly. But it's, uh, and, you know, we obviously have two, three, four inch at least on the good side. So it's not exactly. So you don't have to worry about it really. But so long as you're inside the measurements, then, then you are, uh, then you're pretty good to go and drive across the country. Do you have any sense then, are most of the tiny homes being made today, are most of them actually on wheels as opposed to having a kind of fixed foundation? And then second question, the tiny homes that you are building, are you more interested in building ones on wheels or you don't have a preference or what's that landscape look like? We are building tiny homes on wheels because we also want to have the opportunity to actually move the house if you want to move location yourself. If people want to build tiny homes, to me, very often when people want to build homes that are you know, on a foundation and like a normal house, but they're a bit smaller, nine out of 10, they end up being 
small houses, not tiny homes. They, if you have an efficient mindset and you want to make it very, very good like that, I totally think it's possible to make a house like that. But then it's totally different deal. Like we, we don't build those. And I think that's any contractor can build a house. You just tell them, I want the half the American size. That's it, yeah. you know. <laughs> so back to the difference between a tiny home versus a small home. I thought I was reading that maybe something in the 500 to 600 foot range, does that start approaching the limit of a tiny home? Or would you put it, you're talking about um, homes more in the 320 to 350 square foot range? How do you personally think about this? Or, or maybe there are fixed definitions of, well, at that point you have left the world of tiny homes. You are now into the world of small homes. Yeah, that's, I think that's from person to person, right? Because if you are used to a five to 7,000 square feet home, then a 2,000 foot home is a tiny home for you because you're like, ah, oh, it's like a fraction of mine big American home, you know? Uh, but I think a tiny home is definitely around three to 400 square feet. And when you're starting to do five, 600 square foot, it can still be a small home, but to me, it's not a, a tiny home on wheels. Of course not, because then, then it's like a model of structure that comes transported on the road and then you can uh, get up to that kind of number but you obviously can't transport it on the road legally, that's for sure. So uh, to me, it's important to be able to do that. And uh, it's possible with these houses, so long as they are not oversized. So I think, I don't think there is a, I don't know, maybe there is, I haven't researched that, if there is a definition of what's a small home or a tiny home. I think that's a person to person, you know? I should let you get going soon. What does your summer look like? at this point? Where are you spending the bulk of your time? Are you spending time on 50 project stuff right now, whether it's looking at next year or finishing up editing stuff on last year? What's your life look like? To me, the summer doesn't start normally until like July, because when we are filming big projects and it's been like that for me the last 15 years, Every spring, I'm really busy filming different adventures in all these mountains, left and right. And then, you know, we, we the ski season is good in May, June on the big mountains. And that's when you kind of have to have the biggest energy. So, for example, the ski season doesn't start in November for me because, or December or January, really, because I kind of get a little bit bored if I'm going to ski eight months in a row. So, my summer doesn't start until around July and then I'm done with the filming for the winter. I still do some summer filming. I I was in Chamonix, France for most of July, visiting friends, family. I did some filming there too. Uh, I'm starting to get more into filming running movies as well because I kind of enjoy filming in the summer when you don't have to freeze too much. <laughs> so that's pretty sweet. But uh, in the summer, I'm also trying to train a lot. I train quite a lot actually I do a lot of a lot of running and um, I'm working a lot on the tiny homes and vans and trying to get that more going in the in the off season so to speak but I also do filming when there is time for it so I keep myself busy sometimes too busy <laughs> sounds like it 
where should people go to learn more either about the vans or about your tiny homes? Reach out to us um, on our website, beyondabuilds.com. We are taking orders right now for tiny homes and vans. And we also have tiny home and a van for sale at the moment. You can also find more information on social media or Facebook, Instagram, Beyond Builds. Just search on that and you should find all the information. And yeah, just, just reach out and can start the conversation. Very cool, man. I think it's really cool what you're up to. This is such a unique and cool element to bring into the mix for all of these conversations that we've been having about mountain town economics and affordable housing and just thinking about our communities in general. And so uh, I really appreciate the time and your perspective on these things because I, I think whether a person ends up buying a van or a tiny home, what we've been talking about here will just get people thinking a bit differently about what counts as normal or what counts as standard, perhaps especially here in America, and um, and getting people to just think through, you know, what do I really, what do I really actually need? You know, I think that's always a valuable thing to get people thinking about, and I think you've done a great job of that today. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I appreciate it. Excellent, man. Well. Good luck with everything you're up to. Good luck for dealing with Cody again. I'm glad you have this time off. I wish you had even more time off because I, 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 I know a little bit of what it's like. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll light a candle. I'll think of you. And let's just, let's just hope he gets cooler to be around, more interesting. You know, let's just hope for all of that. Here's to hoping Cody becomes a better human. <laughs> He's a good human being. That's all good. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, he's good. pretty good. I don't like to tell him that, you know, but it's true. He's, he's a pretty good yeah. dude. So, hey, man, thanks again. I look forward to the next time. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks so much to Bjarna for the conversation. And again, you can go to bjarnabuilds.com to check out what they're up to there. You can also follow along on the socials at Bjarna Builds. And I'd be very interested to hear from any of you who have gone down the road a bit on tiny homes in various parts of the country or outside of the U.S. Um, tell us your experiences, what you found, if you hit roadblocks or obstacles, or maybe you found some places like Bjarna talked about where it seems like things are becoming more and more open and amenable to stuff like tiny homes. Let us know what you're finding. Finally, if you are enjoying these conversations, then we would very much appreciate it if you would take just a few seconds to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Let us know that you are into these topics and want us to keep exploring a whole range of topics, which is what we do on the Blister Podcast. Let us know, drop us that rating of review, and we will talk to you again real soon. <laughs>